Hey, this is Miles Fisher, and you're listening to Coffee with the Greats, a podcast that explores what it means to be great and how we chart our own paths to get there. Today, we close out our first season with a special guest. You've heard him here before, but never under the spotlight. Richard W. Fisher, my co-host and dad. Where to start? Well, he'll tell his own story, but I'll just say that it's unusual interviewing your own dad. For one, I've always been a little in awe of his story. His father was abandoned on a doorstep after being born in 1904 in a small town called Toowoomba in Australia. My dad's journey is an inspiring one. It's led him to a distinguished career in the private sector and and in public service. Some things to point out after having just listened to this. He can be a bit goofy, but he's still quick with humor. He gives a pretty good snapshot of college in the late 60s and early 70s. And there's bits in here I've never heard before, like the real reason why he ran for Senate in the 90s, or his take on how Congress actually works. As a personal aside, I'll admit that for much of my life, I've secretly felt like an underachiever. It's my own hang-up. I I don't know why I'm in such a hurry to get to the next step in life. But in listening to my father speak, and in hearing references to my siblings, my grandparents, and, and his own heroes, you get a glimpse into the caliber of conversation around the dinner table that I experienced growing up. It's a lot to live up to. Hey, getting this podcast off the ground has been a great experience so far. And thanks to you, it's finding an audience. We've already begun recording season two with extraordinary guests. I'm so excited about it. We're also introducing a new Q&A format at the end of this episode with a few answers to your thoughtful questions. So please keep sending them in. And thank you for subscribing and rating our podcast. It really helps. Okay. We'll be back shortly with a whole new season of Coffee with the Greats. But for now, brew a cup of coffee, sit back, and enjoy this season finale with Richard W. Fisher. Well, uh, as you know, your grandfather, my father, uh, finally gained citizenship in the United States at the end of 1948. He waited nine years in Tijuana, Mexico to be admitted. My mother, your grandmother, had already been admitted, but not as a citizen. She waited in San Ysidro. He was in Tijuana, and they would cross what is called an Anglo Mojado, which means he was a white wetback. He'd literally cross the border and then go back and so on. But when they were admitted in uh, actually early 48, he got the job of going to collect some money in Shanghai for the Spazier Chemical and Soap Company. And they owed a couple of Mandarin families, owned owed him, the company, $200,000, U.S. dollars, a lot of money back then, a jillion dollars today. So he was sent to, frankly, muscle him out of the money. He's a tough guy, grew up poor, no education, smart. And they moved into the Peace Hotel, what is now the Peace Hotel in Shanghai, which has, by the way, the oldest jazz band in the world because they are old. One of them's 90 I met the guy when I was in Shanghai a couple of years ago, and uh, but they're very famous, and uh, that's where they live. And so when Mao's forces came in to Shanghai 
to close down the ports and take over from Chiang Kai-shek's forces. It was October of 1948. Dad uh, had two suitcases full of cash, each with $100,000 in U.S. money. Got on board the SS President Wilson. We have the bill of lading from that ship. It was the second to last ship to leave the port of Shanghai. Um, they arrived in Los Angeles, in the port of Los Angeles. And I was born five months later. So I was made in China. Good thing the president hasn't found us out. He'd slap a tariff on me or something. But there was a great deal that you and your, your brothers really didn't even know about your own dad until, you know, later in your life and you were officially a, a diplomat representing the United States. And so they were able to present findings. But for the most part, you know, you grew up, you grew up pretty, pretty tough yourself. I mean, you went to a, a rough and tumble kind of military school, doesn't even exist anymore. And then you went to the Naval Academy and, and kind of uh, stair-stepped into this extraordinary uh, education, which is one of the great uh, gifts this this country has, but what what did kind of your your life look like teenage through through your twenties? We got back from China. Uh, Dad did really well, and they lived brilliantly in Beverly Hills, right next to Greta Peck and Gregory Peck, and they were sort of in. Uh, and then uh, when my brother Bobby, who's by the way uh, on his deathbed as we speak, which is sad, he's seventy six years old now. Um, they started sort of losing grip. And basically, uh, we ended up, when we moved back to Mexico, we did well. But when we left Mexico, we were totally bankrupt. So I grew up in uh, very modest circumstances. My dad became a used car salesman in Miami after we went broke, after living in these big houses in Mexico City. And uh, dad was in terrible shape. So then we moved back to California, and I went to uh Rango Elementary in South Pasadena and South Pasadena Junior High School. Uh, we were the only Anglo family that lived on the wrong side of the tracks, along with the Ekstrom family. And David Ekstrom and I would walk to school every morning and we'd walk back. And I remember there was a bully who uh, used to taunt us a lot. And one day walking back from school, he took David by the neck and said, I'm going to beat the pulp out of you. And I said, no, 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 you got to go through me first. He said, okay. So he beat the pulp out of me, then he beat the pulp out of David. I mean, we lived in a really very unfortunate neighborhood in those days. So I grew up basically playing Little League baseball and uh, um, going to the boys club. That was my refuge. And I thought it was a pretty, for me, happy middle class, except for uh, all my clothes at that time were bought with green stamps and orange stamps. And, uh, you know, we weren't, we were less than modestly well off. What are green stamps and orange stamps? I, I, I'm not familiar with that. Well, you, you'd go to the supermarket and you'd get stamps like points today and cr like credit. And you'd fill a book and then you'd go to a store. It's like a Goodwill. Huh. And you'd turn in those stamp books. And I used to get all my T-shirts, for example, and my shirts uh, from that. I used to go to the barber college to get my hair cut, which were basically former prisoners that were being trained. So you'd literally put a bowl on your head and shit, you, you know, God, these were murderers and rapists and just horrible people. Uh, so that's the kind of childhood I had. And then um, we would get our encyclopedia from the Safeway. If you bought so much, you also got access to these Golden Book encyclopedias. 
I became a voracious reader. Uh, my mother only read Reader's Digest condensed novels, and my dad uh, uh, preferred looking at uh, scanty magazines, I would say, more than anything else. So uh, the origins of Playboy, and as kids, we would look at National Geographic to see our naked women because that was, you know, natives and people in Brazil and things like that. But so it was a very, very humble beginning, uh, Miles. And then I lucked out. Uh, my older brother, Mike, before he did not go to college, put food on the table, and we were living in Mexico City, he uh, was admitted to, and had, and my parents could afford to pay for him to go Admiral Farragut Academy in Pine Beach, New Jersey. When I came around, uh, we couldn't afford it. I wanted to go to Farragut Academy. And somehow dad got Gerard Trust in Philadelphia to lend us and scholarship me to go to Farragut Academy. I went in the summer of eighth grade. I never came home. And that was a great experience for me. We, uh, I excelled academically. I'd never been in that kind of discipline format. And um, then it led to the Naval Academy. Of course, in my year, only three of us got admitted to the Naval Academy. And I was appointed by a congressman, uh, former congressman Theodore Kupman in New York, who was then a Supreme Court Justice of New York, one of the Supreme Court Justices. And and you entered you entered into Annapolis uh, late sixty seven summer sixty seven. I wanted to play football. I was quarterback and captain of the Farragut team. We played in a really tough <laughs> circuit. I mean, we would bring in postgraduates to play for the season. My fullback, a uh, guy named uh, Ralph Hughes, was twenty six years old. This is in high school. <laughs> he was married and had two children. And when he no they way. would play they would play until football season was over. Then they disappeared. Yeah. And he and his brother played. They weren't the smartest guys on the planet. And here's the irony of this guy. He, uh, when he went home, his father had stolen his Ralph's wife away, and his two children ended up marrying Ralph's wife and adopted the two children and cut him out. These were miners from Pennsylvania, tough folks. And that was also a good way to learn about just good old hard scrabble people. So we had a mix of Farragut Academy, those kind. I think we had most of this children of major mafia figures. They would also do extremely well academically, by the way. Amazingly, even though they didn't go to class a lot of them. Johnny Giancarlo was in school with me. And people listening will know who the Giancarlo family was. Uh, he's a major figure right now, from what I understand. Haven't been in touch with him, by the way, uh, since I graduated from Farrah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a great place to get some discipline, learn academic principles. It worked well at Naval Academy. I did well at the Naval Academy. And uh, from there, I did well enough that several of my professors said, you ought to be going to an Ivy school. Two professors said, look, we'll, we'll practically write your application, but you, sh you, you should go to Harvard. Now, there was a legal <laughs> obligation, though, correct, at, at the Annapolis and our other service academies. My understanding is, is if you begin your junior year, uh, right. You're legally obliged to then serve in the armed forces for four to six years after, correct? Correct. So I left after my so-called youngster year, which is your sophomore year. I did my midshipman cruises after my plebe year. I was on the USS Truckee and the USS New. Uh, went back, of course, finished my sophomore year. And there was a date where you had to let them know if you were coming back as a junior or what's called a second classman. 
So if you were to start your first day of your second class year, you could not drop out. And if you did, you'd go in as a listed man. I also made a promise. I made a promise that upon graduating in 1971 from Harvard, I would go into OCS and go to Vietnam. Well, we had a lottery system at the end of the war, 71, 72. I drew 332, I think, in the lottery, and I never got called. So um, I would have gone had they asked. I made a promise, but I never got the call to go into OCS and serve in Vietnam the last two years of the war. Well, you also underwent uh, two extremely, almost radically different environments, which is <laughs> in the Naval Academy in 1969, shaved head, shine shoes, yes or no, sir, to you know, the Kremlin on the Charles, uh, Harvard, it, it, where, you know, class was optional and most people had hair down to their waist if they wore clothes at all. Actually, if they wore clothes at all, it's an interesting thing because uh, the master of Elliott House was a famous classics professor. These are the dormitories at Harvard. You know the system there, but they're called houses. Uh, and Master Finley, when I got there, said, uh, young man, we're going to put you through a real dialectic process. Sir, what does that mean? So you'll find out. So my roommates, without getting into names, they have the number two guy in SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, who didn't believe in deodorant, by the way, he thought it was a capitalist conspiracy and any consumer prop washing his hair, et cetera. He was on the front page of the Boston Globe, pictures punching out a, a, a cop. And that was a big frame thing when I got to my room. Then uh, speaking of no clothes, my other roommate was head of the gay we used to call it the Gay Liberation Society, now whatever his name is. But most importantly, he was head of the Nude Tuba Player Society. Hmm. And I would come home and there'd be 12 of 20 nude tuba players playing in the common room. That sound, it sounds so much better when, when they're not wearing clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and anytime you get you know, well, more than four or five yeah. tuba players, it, it just increases the quality of, of the harmony. Well, you know, it's just one of the great thrills of all time. <laughs> they are—they were large people, by the way. You play a tuba, you're usually a large person. So they weren't the most physically attractive people. But that was, the, this was a dialectic process. And then the third roommate I shared a bedroom with. He combed his hair in a ponytail in front, with all butch wax, like a horse's tail, but facing the other way. And he would, he didn't believe in speaking. And he would hold a big... Uh, board above me, a big yellow board, and over my bed till I woke up and say, good morning, Richard, time to go to school. Well, after one term... Welcome to Harvard. <laughs> after one semester, I uh, went to Master Finley and I said, you know, <laughs> this is too much of a dialectic process for me. And uh, thank you very much. I've learned a lot about others. And uh, I drew number one in a new house lottery. It's called Mather House. And I moved after one semester in Elliott House. Um, they were actually good guys. They were just so wacky. It was hard to believe. And as to hair, I didn't cut my hair for over two years. Uh, I, my hair ended up being shoulder length like everybody else at that time. Well, but up, I did, up, to, up to that I, point, you only had criminals cutting it. And then you know, the United <laughs> States military. The Naval Academy where they just <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that's evolved. But okay, so uh, you you're about to graduate from Harvard. What is uh what what is the next kind of chapter look like? What are your opportunities, and what do you do? Well, first, I worked four jobs to get through Harvard because it was an expensive place. Right. Uh, 
I was a bartender for special events. I went to Harvard Bartending School, which was great because you could drink all you wanted to learn all these different drinks. I worked the Cambridge Bike Shop. I did research for a professor, and then I put together the Mather House Library, which was new. Huh. And I, I managed it with a bunch of other guys. So uh, when I graduated, there were, I believe, six seniors nominated for the Rhodes and Marshall Scholarships. Uh, I applied to Oxford, got accepted. That's the way the system worked. But five got either the Marshall or the Rhodes, and I was the only one who received neither scholarship. So um, I had to get a job. But I ended up going to the Dominican Republic, working for a bank for six months. And then I came back to Washington, D.C. with to room with a friend. And I was a busboy at the Hawk and Dove. Then I became a waiter. Then I became a bartender. And that gave me enough pocket money because Oxford didn't cost anything in those days. My tuition, uh, I still had the bills, were six pounds a term. Goodness. Six pounds, not 600, not 6,000. My wine bill, which is automatically charged, was 150 pounds a term. Um, so even if you added that in, it was very inexpensive. And I had saved enough money to go. So I did uh, a year at Oxford. I met your mother. And uh, I realized, oh, my God, what am I trying to get a Ph.D. in Latin American history for? I'm going to have to work and get a job. And I applied to Stanford Business School. And I applied very late in March. And I got a uh, applied to Harvard, Harvard Law, Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School. And then the scout, as they call it, the fellow who ran our dorm, old English civil servant, came in one day and said, there's a phone call from America. So we go down and take the phone booth. There was a man named Dick Lazarus, who was the dean of Stanford Business School uh, admissions. And he said, I only have one question. I got your letter. Are you Jewish? Dick was very Jewish and a wonderful man. His family were Federated stores, lovely human being. I said, no, sir, I'm an Episcopalian. I was baptized Episcopalian. I'm a Protestant. He said, well, you got a lot of chutzpah. We filled the class in November. You're in. So, well, don't I have to take tests and write letters and show essays? He said, no, no, no. Anybody, forgive me, offer, this is his words. Anybody with the balls to do this is admitted. And that's how I got to Stanford Business School. How about that? Yeah. And I had, uh, you know, it just happened. And so I felt that I could marry your mother because I could, you know, I was going to get an education. I was going to learn finance, which I did, and marketing. And what that school set me up for life. And so I really am grateful that Mr. Lazarus, who later was killed in an auto accident, by the way, lovely man, uh, admitted me and that um, changed my life. So everything's changed my life. In you went you went to the Naval Academy because, you know, it was a boyhood dream to serve and you were lucky to, to get in. You were able yeah. to transfer to Harvard and you studied economics there. And then at Oxford, it was Latin American economics. Um, right. that, that was kind of the spot. And then you you studied really business management um, back when, you know, a Stanford yeah. MBA was was a bit different from a Harvard MBA. I mean, it was a much smaller kind of graduating class and was it considered then as entrepreneurial as it's considered now? No, we all went to the same jobs. I ended up working for McKinsey during the summer and then went to Brown Brothers Harriman in New York, a private bank. That was fairly typical, but it wasn't the school it is today. And it's, it's equal par with Harvard. People have to decide one or the other. I was lucky because 
it's always good to go to a place that becomes even better. And then your reputation is enhanced. But I had great professors. Uh, Bill Sharp was my accounting professor, a Nobel laureate, later won the Nobel Prize. Um, McDonald was my uh, international investment professor, one of the greats of all time. They had incredible faculty. They were just being discovered at that time. So that really was very helpful to me. So you're in your mid-20s, you're married, you're insanely overeducated. Uh, how, how do you uh, start start kind of applying for for jobs that will help you get where you want to go? Do you know where you want to go? Um, had no idea. Now, um, what I did at Stanford probably irritated my classmates, but in those days, people would come to interview. It could be Procter & Gamble. It could be J.P. Morgan, whoever it was. I signed up for every one of them. And I'd go, say, into Procter & Gamble and say, you know what? I've always been intrigued by soap and detergent. I mean, this is, I love consumer products. Or, you know, I want to be an investment banker. Or, you know, we didn't have software in those days, by the way. But, um, I went to every, and every interview I went to, as you know, most of them were in those days conducted by males. Males love to talk about themselves. And they would tell me more. I got as good an education listening to a great company it was, how they operated, what their business model was, how they got there, built their careers. Um, and in the end, uh, it was McKinsey and Company that offered me BCG, Boston Consulting Group, and McKinsey. I had worked for McKinsey during the summers to pay my way, help pay my way through Stanford Business and to learn more. And um, I signed up for McKinsey. And then I got a phone call one day from a man named Bill Goodman, Brown Brothers Harriman, the most prestigious private bank on Wall Street. And he uh, says, uh, Mr. Fisher, uh, you're coming to work for Robert Rosa. Robert Rosa was the most famous international financier, undersecretary of the Treasury under Kennedy when he had veto power in those days over the Federal Reserve on foreign exchange operations. He built the New York Fed's trading department, which is the desk is what runs all the guts now of uh, what the Fed does. And he was a people. I he was one of the guys we read about in my course at Stanford. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but uh, I've accepted a job at McKinsey Company. And Mr. Goodman said, oh, yeah, but they just sold you to us. You're going to come to work for Mr. Rosa. Well, I was offered a very rich in those days near the top of my class, 36500 by McKinsey. And I said, well, I've already signed on with McKinsey. I, it's near the highest of my class. He said, oh, no, we're going to pay you 12500 But we guarantee you a $50 bonus. And we also guarantee you being educated by Robert Rosa will change your life. And it did. So the irony is the managing partner of McKinsey Worldwide, a fellow named Lee Walton, that's who Bob Rosa contacted to buy me. Um, when we built the business of Brown Brothers Harriman in Dallas, which I was the senior manager of, he was one of our first clients. When my partner, Monty Jones, and I separated from Brown Brothers and created our own firm, Fisher Capital, Lee Walton came with us. And he's, his family, he's deceased now, but his family still has money managed by Monty Jones, hmm. my former partner. So... It was a constant figure in our life. He was a famous man, a great guy. Mr. Rose had told me uh, that he would teach me money, which he did, teach me the bond markets and foreign exchange markets, which he did, in return for which he expected at some point I would serve 
at the Federal Reserve. Now, I didn't become head of the Dallas Fed until 2005. And this was uh, 1975 when he told me that. So sticking sticking in, uh, I, I'm, I'm really curious, just hearing you say this, and you know, so much of this has not been family lore, but I've, I've heard different angles of your journey, obviously my whole life. But going back to 1975, you know, I've, I've always looked at you as very much self-made, but also kind of self-created. Um, you know, you, you've, you've got this, this confidence. And as you just said, you're, you're good to improvise on the go and learn, learn from other people in real time. But you go to a place like Brown Brothers Harriman, and, you know, that's about as uh, patrician as it gets insofar as the style. Um, you know, how did you acclimate to the nuance? Do, I guess what I'm asking is, do you ever feel like a fraud sometimes, Dad? Do you ever like walk into these rooms with oak paneled and, you know, businesses that go back 200 years and just say, they're going to see right through me? Like, how did you, how did you learn the, the unspoken behaviors of these worlds? Well, I think uh, one of the genetic things I inherited from my dad was adaptive. Yeah, the ability to just go to a country with two suitcases and muscle. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, as I like to remind people, we went from homeless, which my father was, all the way through his teenage years. We went from homeless to Harvard in one generation. I never felt self-conscious at Harvard, ever. Uh, I never felt self-conscious anywhere. Now... Uh, I also had, I want to make this clear, there were people that were good to me. Admiral Kaufman was good to me. Those professors at the Naval Academy good for me. Raven O. Dodge, who was the headmaster of Farragut Academy, took me under his wing. I don't know why. He was a wonderful man. Uh, your grandfather on your mother's side was very good to me, Congressman Collins. And uh, he introduced me to everybody in Dallas, which later became a big part of my life, as you know, still is. So there were good St. Samaritans along the way. And I lucked out with the, the very best people ever. Robert Rosa really became my intellectual father. Uh, we worked together for so long and he stayed in touch with me forever until he passed away. So, um, but Miles, other than the fact, <laughs> I only had one suit when I went to interview at Brown Brothers. And um, we had a very nice partner uh, who said, they had a very nice partner. He said, I'm going to do you a favor. At lunch, come back and see me. Came back and saw me. He took me to a tailor and had the guy make me a suit. Uh, and he said, by the way, that's the most hideous tie. It doesn't fit in here. I'm going to get you a tie. You know, in those days, a stripe club type tie. So um, everybody comes from nowhere, Miles. And it's important for us to all remember we came and I came and you came from very humble beginnings. Your grandfather begged for food as a child. We came from nowhere. Everybody came from nowhere. So I, I guess with that in the back of my mind, I don't worry. About it. But then you, so you kind of a new chapter of your life started when you moved to Dallas and started to, to build your own business and to grow your family. Well, I grew I, I moved, built Brown Brothers business when I first got there mm-hmm. did that for quite almost 10 years. And it was in retrospect, it was a pretty good time to move to Texas. As far as the economy, as far as, you know, regulations and, and what incentivized people, did you, 
was there a point in New York where you just uh, you you felt you would have more resistance building building the future of your dreams there versus versus Texas? Yeah, I so your brother Anders uh, was a bicentennial baby, nineteen seventy six, and uh, they still had all the big tall ships and everything around, and I took him. <laughs> As a baby, because, you know, mom needed some time off, obviously. We were living in an apartment in New York. I took your brother, Anders, over to the Statue of Liberty in my arms. And on the way back, it was one of those perfect Manhattan nights. The sun was setting. The buildings looked like they had all been washed. We had a rainstorm maybe two days before. It's gorgeous, gleaming in light. And uh, I remember thinking, this place is already established. I will never have an impact on it. Um, I had already at that age, thanks to Mr. Rosa, uh, had become a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. That was a big deal then. My admittance letter, by the way, was typed out and signed by David Rockefeller in hand. Now it's all done through the internet. So I was I was beginning to move upward, but um, I just felt I'm, I'm not going to have any influence here. I mean, the odds are long and I need to find a place. And of course, your mother, Nancy, my wife, was from Dallas. She wanted to live in Houston, by the way. She loved New York. But we realized you can't raise children beyond the tricycle age in New York City. So we had Allison, your sister, by then. We ended up going. I went to Washington to be Jimmy Carter's, one of his assistants, write his memoranda, uh, be the assistant to the Secretary of the Treasury, because Robert Rosa had been offered Secretary of the Treasury, turned the president down. He didn't feel comfortable with him, even though he was a Democrat. And Michael Blumenthal became Secretary of Treasury. And Mr. Rosa arranged for me to be uh, the assistant to Michael Blumenthal. So uh, when I, we went back to New York, and that's when I decided, you know, we really can't stay here. And uh, Dallas was just building DFW Airport. It was getting to a point where you could see you could go anywhere in America and come back overnight. And Brown Brothers did not have any business there. So I decided to build it in Dallas, and it worked. Um, Helped by men like Ed Cox and other people your grandfather introduced me to. And it took off and did very, very well. You know, you you had a a kind of a private wealth management business. You had a run at uh, running for public office. Um, Terrible experience. You want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah. So uh, Lloyd Benson became Secretary of the Treasury, and he he was the senator from Texas, the senior senator. This may sound like an oxymoron, but he was a conservative Democrat. Democrats ruled in those days. And remember, your grandfather, James Collins, was a congressman. He ran against Lloyd Benson and lost. He got 38, 39% of the vote. Right. And, and well, again, just prior prior to that, it, da- it was the, the national phrase was LBJ Democrats. And Tech yeah. was the Democratic strong bed for, for an entire generation, if not longer, right? They had your grandfather and George H.W. Bush were the first two Republicans elected to Congress. Right. Of stature. So, and of course, H.W. became president of the United States, did all these glorious things, wonderful human being. So, Benson was named Secretary of the Treasury. I had been part of a group uh, that had been advising him, and he, he was good at collecting younger people. 
And uh, he asked me to run to replace him mainly because of two things. One is the opposition, the guy who was going to get the Democratic nomination uh, was had been a congressman for a short period. He was rude on the floor. Tip O'Neill actually threw him out of the Congress because he wouldn't dress appropriately because he was crude and swore. In those days, he didn't hear the kind of cuss words you hear today. He became attorney general of Texas. He was the anointed person to run. And um, we also had five different congressmen who wanted the job. We had a general election where there were 30 different candidates all in one election. I got my first market share there, 6%. And then... um, which put me way down on the list. You also, you also, but, Texas had a larger than life, very well respected female governor named Ann Richards at the time. I'll come to that because when Benson decided I'm the one, I remember him calling me and saying, "Look, you're a business guy. You're you're my kind of guy. You understand fiscal responsibility, et cetera, et cetera." And uh, by the way, we're going to balance the budget in the Clinton administration, which nobody believed we did. They did rather. We're going to reform welfare. No one believed in tech. They did. It was shrinking because they were paying down the nation's debt. That was my platform. So uh, that's why he encouraged me. I ended up beating Maddox in the, in the runoff. And Ann Richards and I were the ticket. What's ironic, Miles, is, as you know, George W. Bush is a friend of mine. And uh, he ran for governor against Ann. And we did lose. And I got the same share that your grandfather got running as a Republican, uh, 39% against Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Uh, Lloyd Benson was worried about Kay, uh, who's, as you know, a friend, but she was under criminal indictment at the time. The seventh sitting U.S. senator in history. And we all knew Kay was a good person, but we didn't know how that would come out. And if here's the, here's the whole matrix. If for some reason they didn't dismiss her case or she was found guilty. Then the former attorney general of Texas, who Lloyd Benson couldn't stand, would have become automatically the senator from Texas. And he felt, as the old guys, Tip O'Neill, all these guys felt, would have embarrassed everybody. So I was sort of, frankly, I ran to take him out. And I succeeded and then KBP. And Kay and I are friends to this day. I love working with Ann, by the way, because <laughs> she was such an entertainer. And you could tell when I'd stand behind her on the stage when she was speaking, she would do for me. And when she would cross her legs behind the podium, she was about to deliver a very funny joke. Uh, and um, I wouldn't say we were close, but many years later, I was walking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Someone grabs me from the back, folds me over, kisses me on the mouth. Uh, but anyway, she was a character, fun to be with. I know partisan people don't like Democrats, Democrats don't like Republicans. All these people are human, and you learn a lot by doing this. Yeah. But I wasn't cut out for it. I'm a policy-oriented guy. I wasn't a good performer. I remember giving a speech, Winston Churchill-type speech, to a union hall in Orange, Texas. And when we were done, I went to the men's room. And they had one of those hand blowers where you push the button and the hot air comes out. Someone wrote, if you want to hear Fisher speak again, push this button. That's when I knew I was not doing a good job. So I learned a lot, spent a lot of my own money, our money. And uh, I threw up every morning for 18 months. I hated it. 
I wasn't good at it. And I learned a lesson there. Some things you're just not good at. So uh, lesson learned. And I think I do speak better than that hand blower now. But anyway, uh, that was quite an awakening experience. <laughs> and so what did uh, what did it look like after you? I mean, I, I don't remember much. I was in third and fourth grade. I remember a couple of your rallies. I remember when the president, uh, Bill Clinton, came you know, down to uh, fundraise with you for a weekend and, and how neat that was. We did but, that. That was in Washington. That was in Washington, D.C. He did a great fundraiser. But I also remember, um, maybe embarrassment's not the right word, but you then looked uh, with regret on that time of your life for the next 20 years of your life, that it was kind of your folly or, <laughs> as you joked, your midlife crisis or whatnot. Um, so it was pretty pretty negative, and yet – you know, you had really started, you'd spent time in the White House in the Carter administration. You knew all the young rising stars, Larry Summers, Rubin, you know, the, the really uh, young, ambitious minds back then. And, right. um, you know, I, I still think a lot of people who have only known you over the last 10 years would be aghast to learn that you were officially part of the Democratic Party. Well, um, here's what here's the way I distinguish between the people you just mentioned and the things that I'm good at. Um, policy is policy. Running for office is show business. That's all it is. And if you haven't figured out, look, look at this current president we have. I mean, whether you like him or not, he knows how to entertain. Is he policy oriented? No way. You would, once you get into office, you have policy people like me or bigger guys like Larry Summers or Bob Rubin or Robert Rosa, my mentor, to advise you. Uh, and you take from them. But running for office, you're just entertainment. You're a hamburger patty being marketed by clever people. And you perform. So it took me a while to realize that. I thought this was about serious stuff. And Kate Bailey Hutchinson, who I ran against, you know, was physically attractive. She understand how to work the media. She was smart uh, in terms of entertainment. And she did a really good job. And I was just a dork running for the Senate. So um, I think the other thing is you go through a period after Jimmy Carter actually came to Dallas. I'd worked for him, as you know. And he asked Anders, your oldest brother, me to come see him. He gave a lecture at SMU. And he very nicely called and said, bring your oldest son. Said, uh, uh, Richard, you're going to lose. I had my son there. Anders was 12, I think, at the time. And so, Mr. President, <laughs> I know what the polls are telling me. You're right. I'll be lucky to get 30 or 30 or 40 percent of the vote. But um, why are you telling me this? And why are you telling me this in front of Anders? He said, well, and this is very interesting. He said, you're going to go through a period of depression. You've been in this business from start to finish, as I measure, 18 months. And this is so Jimmy Carter. He said, so you'll be depressed for three days. And he said, you need to find someone, get out of your house, uh, find a good doctor or one of your closest friends, and just crawl in bed in their home and let them take care of you. Well, uh, I listened to that. and I said, geez, Mr. President, uh, were you depressed when you lost? I was, but 
Um, and Rosalind will never recover. She'll be clinically depressed the rest of her life. It hurt her the most. I said, well, what about you, Mr. Presley? He said, uh, well, I have a choice. Uh, Billy had driven us into bankruptcy, so I had to get to work. Billy was his brother, if you remember. Because uh, I said, is it because of your faith? Your belief? He said, hell no. Billy drove us into bankruptcy. I, I had to get to work. Amazing. And by the way, uh, when I did lose, I, my roommate from Farragut Academy, it's a brilliant doctor, Alejandro Garcias, Cuban immigrant, who, of course, by the time we finished, won the English Prize. Didn't even speak a word of Spanish when he came as a sophomore to Farragut. And uh, he was in Atlanta, very prominent urologist. I just called him and said, can I move into your house for three or four days? And he just nursed me. And I got over it. It was a setback, but it didn't wreck my life. And in fact, I became a better public speaker yeah. by that experience. I also learned to be very wary of politicians. I know how it works. Um, and had you not had you not chosen that path, uh, you then wouldn't have been uh, part of the Clinton administration. And had you not yeah. done that, you wouldn't have partnered with Henry Kissinger. And had you not done that, you may well have not have served the Fed. That's true. And uh, Bill Clinton was down to 12% of the polls. Uh, it, even though we, were, we had a similar platform, uh, and by the way, his administration delivered on what he promised, we did literally come to a point where the Federal Reserve was where you won't have enough treasuries to buy because they're buying down the debt. Tell can you Can you just speak a little bit about just about Bill Clinton as far as his brain? Because, you know, now that last name has so much baggage attached to it. We've lived through so much life. But, you know, people forget Bill Clinton was an extraordinarily gifted politician. Well, Miles, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. He was, uh, look, I I was, I I said, you know, Mr. Mr. President, he called me, you were on a cruise with us. We went for a cruise around Asia, if you may remember. And I got called on the ship. I remember. And this is 1997. That's right. And so uh, he was on the phone. He said, Richard, uh, I want you to join the administration. Uh, I think you'd be a good undersecretary of state or trade representative or deputy trade representative. And uh, he said, the lawyers are going to call you and we'll figure out what's best for you. Well, I became deputy U.S. trade representative. He was amazing. I mean, I, the first... Real big deal was I did an agreement with Korea, the first U.S. auto Korea agreement. I get a phone call. Come on over to the office, Richard. And uh, we're going to do a press conference. He introduces me to the press corps and he said, Richard, you take over. I was scared to death. We had a, a uh, they had a summit meeting in uh, Birmingham, England. And uh, I remember it. I got woken up in the middle of the night. He said, you did all the trade work here. I want you to go give the briefing to the press. Well, the press was a football field-sized auditorium with press from all over the world. And he just turned it over to me. I just pictured, I just imagined Chevy Chase and Spies Like Us just talking to some, uh, the uh, Paraguayan crop shortage <clears throat> as it was, as it were, uh, if there were any other. Oh, uh, come on, Miles. It's all ball berries these days. Like, you keep that, that's Fletch. That, that's Fletch, but the other one was fun. The other thing was, for example, I did the, uh, I implemented NAFTA along with Charlene Barshevsky. And uh, at the same time, I did the. the that, that's recently Prince been called the worst trade deal in the history of the world. 
That's right. Well, it didn't need to be updated, but I wouldn't say it was the worst trade deal in this history. Though. I have the feeling somehow in like the Ming dynasty. <laughs> Mr. Trump would like me very much, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, on that, and also uh, I did the Vietnam Agreement in principle, which ultimately, ultimately was signed by George W. Bush, but it finally ended all hostilities. It wasn't the Paris Peace Accords that Henry Kissinger did. Uh, but the guy that I negotiated with, Vu Quan, was also the guy that he negotiated with a jillion years ago. And we couldn't trade with each other, invest in each other's country till we settled on the trade front. And I negotiated with a, a minister who had been a Viet Cong officer. Uh, the Viet Cong killed my closest friend at uh, Farragut Academy, a guy named Greg Lavery. I carried a rubbing with me from the Vietnam Memorial with me, and I negotiated the pants off of this guy. And so I remember getting back, I got called into the Oval Office. Clinton said, you know, Richard, uh, you took the pants off. You got to give him something back. So we did. But then he said, but here's, here's what you got to learn. On that, he also told me this on uh, when we were doing different things to implement NAFTA. It's easy to negotiate with the Chinese, the Vietnamese, the Mexicans, you name it. Wait till you start negotiating with Congress. Yeah. It's much more difficult. And you know, we had to give things to certain congresspeople. There's a Democratic congressman from, uh, well, from the state of Texas. I won't tell you which one. We have a lot of them. He wouldn't support us on Vietnam. Bill Daly, the Secretary of Commerce, and I went down to see him. And he said, I don't give a damn about trade. Here's what I want. And Daly, uh, by the way, he took, he's smoking Cuban cigars, which were illegal. He wanted to meet at a topless bar. We said, absolutely not. And he was the crudest person I've ever met. All he wanted was to be bought. So Daly was a big deal. And I was a little deal when we said, okay, you can have it. And we got his vote. Uh, we never gave it to him, by the way. And when the Bush administration was finalizing all the final data points of uh, the Vietnam Accord, I negotiated. We got a call saying, by the way, you know, Congressman, said, yeah, yeah. Did you ever give him that stuff? I said, no. I said, good. We'll give it to him again. And they got his vote as well. That's how Congress works. And you learn these things by running for office and serving an administration. It's a great education. Yeah. On on the whole, what was what was it like in the late 90s, early 2000s, working in the executive branch? I mean, you had run for uh, Senate. That didn't pan out. Um, I know you think your time at the Fed was, was kind of the, the highest calling of public service, and we'll get into that. But- it's it is pretty extraordinary that you're you know you're you're dealing with your boss in the in the West Wing, and kind of as you said, getting getting elected that's all show business. And then once you're actually elected, then then a whole nother skill set kicks in. Um, right. But it must have been pretty pretty exciting. I mean, you enjoyed your time in in D.C. Right. You were traveling a lot. He always, he always treated me with decorum. I never saw what we now know as the ugly side. Hmm. I do remember when he admitted to the cabinet, uh, Monica Lewinsky. And I remember Charlene Barshevsky, who was my boss. She was the U.S. trade representative, the deputy, uh, one of the two deputies. Uh, She and Madeleine Albright came back to her office and she called me in to just listen. These women were so angry. Hmm. So, you know, I, that was the first time I had heard about this. And uh, later, Vice President Gore gave your older brother a tour of the old executive office building where the vice president offices and then of the West Wing. And 
I remember him taking into this little space off of the uh, Oval Office and telling Anders gory detail about what Bill Clinton did to Monica Lewinsky in that office. And I said, Mr. Vice President, this isn't appropriate. He's, he's just a, he's a young man. He said, well, he needs to know the truth. So Gore was really upset with the president. And uh, in fact, it was Al Gore that came to campaign for me in Dallas. The president did the fundraiser in Washington for me when I ran for the Senate. And uh, your sister, Texana, <laughs> Gore had just broken his leg on a basketball court before he came out to do campaigning for me in Texas. And later we asked Texana what Al Gore was famous for. She said, basketball. <laughs> she was just a little girl. She didn't know who the hell this guy was. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So I, I found, uh, you know, I worked with some very good people in that administration. Bob Rubin was tops. The Clinton could master details like nobody else. We were negotiating with Argentina. The president of Argentina came up and he said, I want you to come to lunch. And I'm just going to have Ruben, uh, you, I forget who else, uh, Secretary Holbrook. And uh, when we're going into the luncheon on the side of one of these little dining rooms in the White House, I said, Mr. President, our trade issues are so minor. When it comes to trade, let me take over. He said, well, what are the issues? I said, well, you know, it's meat, bull semen. I was negotiating bull semen at the time with the Argentines. Wines, they're just minor issues. So we sit down at the table. <clears throat> this is brilliant. This is how smart this guy was. He says, Mr. President, we have many things to talk about. I have uh, the Secretary of the Treasury here. I have Secretary of State and a Deputy U.S. Trade Representative who speaks fluent Spanish. So if you want, that's me. Um, but he said, before we get started, you know, this issue of bull semen, and he goes into this stuff better than I could ever do. And I only briefed him for about 30 seconds before, literally while we were going into the room. Well, the president of Argentina's president, he didn't know any of this stuff. He gave us everything we wanted because he was embarrassed. He had to keep up with the president of the United States. And uh, when we walked out, Clinton had these big hands. He's a big man, puts his hand up and said, are you proud of me, Richard? We got everything we wanted. Yeah. So uh, that's, I doubt many presidents, no matter who they are, would get into that minor detail and master it so quickly. That was the good side of Bill Clinton. Um, you know, we've learned things since that are not pretty. Yeah. But I think, I mean, he, he, he had a, a brain that worked, you know, at a higher horsepower. I think he had one of these, you know, photographic memories and with names and all that. But then also, I think it's very telling that with a smile in his eye, he said, are you proud of me? There is something about yeah. people that constantly just want the adoration of others. Um, Everybody likes an attaboy, right? Even presidents like attaboys. So let's get let's get into the Fed a little bit. Uh, when I joined the Fed, your local Federal Reserve Bank board is the one who picks you, but ultimately the chairman has to check the box. And I went to visit with Alan, and he said, you have a different background than all the other people who are going to sit around the table. You manage money, you run for office, uh, and you bring different talents. And one of the talents you bring is that you're also well-connected thanks to Mr. Rosa and other people. And uh, when he left, he gave me the list of the people that he would call. I knew many of them already. Rex Tillerson, who was then the head of Exxon, for example. Uh, 
And uh, he had a list of about 50 people. I pared it down over time. These were all over the country, not just in my Federal Reserve District, which is a tender diplomatic exercise because that's what the other Federal Reserve Bank presidents should be doing through their boards of directors. And um, anyway, he gave me the uh, sort of go ahead to call all these people around the country. And then as time went by, Miles, there were what I call Tiggers and Eeyores. There were some guys you call always negative. They were the Eeyores. The guy that ran uh, Toys R Us, for example, was a real Eeyore. And then uh, there were Tiggers who always said good news and Chambers, for example, at Cisco. So I ferreted them out and we ended up with about 32, as I recall. And uh, I would bring that anecdotal evidence to the table because academics, and these are brilliant people, much smarter than I am, they work with data. Data, by the time you collect it and normalize it and take out seasonal factor, is old. And so what I was trying to do at the table, which didn't go over very well initially, not with Ben Bernanke, uh, although eventually it did, and uh, certainly with the, the staff and other people, was to try to bring what's going on now anecdotally to verify or counter the data that we were getting from these massive models we ran and from the surveys that were run, et cetera. So uh, it's interesting because over time, I did notice the other Federal Reserve Bank presidents began to speak more like me, presenting anecdotal evidence. Um, but it didn't go well at first. And yet, even though I had, nobody knew this, but I had Alan's blessing to do it. And in those days before things sort of didn't go well for Alan, you know, he he had a godlike stature. Um, by the way, one of the people I talked to who wasn't a businessman was Paul Volcker, because thanks to Robert Rosa, he became my mentor later in life. And he was the Moses of central banking. So um, I was very lucky to have all these things given to me from my background, but also from Alan Greenspan. And then the kind of people began to learn that I had a direct line with uh, Paul Volcker, and that would open up others. And I would just ask for 10 minutes of their time. People generously gave it to me. These are people very busy. Um, Bob Iger, for example, at Disney and others. Um, and the current CEO of Apple. All these people were so open. So um, that's how I conducted myself at the Fed. I also gave a Julian speeches and I was determined to speak in plain English. Um and got some notoriety for that, but also some uh, pushback from the serious academics who were different than me, and they brought different insights. So it worked out well. It was the most gratifying. Mr. Rosa told me, Bob Rosa told me, the only legitimate, truly satisfying, never having to compromise form of public service is the federal chair. I never had to compromise my principles. Uh, I remember in that initial interview, Greenspan said, I said, well, what do you ask of me? He said, I ask of one thing. You speak to the truth as you understand it. And there'll never be pushback. And I never got, we would have intellectual arguments, but no one held it against you. And you have to compromise your principles. In politics, that's all you do. One way or another. Well, nor nor did you have to have to really even publicly communicate. I mean, there, there was no, 
kind of polling. You didn't have to appeal to on a base. You didn't have to put out any emotions. You didn't have to tweet your forecasts, Dad. And uh, I still don't tweet. Yeah. Never tweeted in my life. <laughs> there's time. There's time yet. I, I think the important point is there are lots of people like me. I'm serious. That don't. The, we're not the grace, but this is the fabric. The good people that provide policy advice or that serve at the Federal Reserve or serve at different bodies in the government, these are good people. And they bring to bear the best that they can muster, the level best they can muster. It may not be the senators or it may not be the head of the Federal Reserve. But underneath, for example, Jerome Powell right now, Jay Powell, they're enormously capable people. Uh, who are just doing their best to do what's best for the country. And people forget that now. People look down on public service, in part because of the bad behavior we have and the partisan strife and ugly words that are shared. But underneath those principles, there are support staff who are really providing the best input they possibly can. And Paul Volcker later in life really was a great believer in public service and tried to get good people to come into public. It's harder and harder these days. And you had a uh, you had a distinguished run. It ended because of uh, mandated term limits, right? So you served for ten years. Ten years or seventy six. One year after your seventy fifth birthday, and mine were simultaneous. And, so, and then you kind of this this current chapter. Uh, you know, I almost feel like Dad, you're 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 as, as as busy as ever now. I know I know you're living a great life and. Uh, you're in Vail, where you know you spend some time in the summer, which sounds just just lovely. But you uh, you serve on a couple of high profile boards, and in this crazy COVID reality we live in, uh, no pe- people have no problem booking you on a bunch of Zooms, huh? <laughs> I mean, it, it seems it seems like you're pretty busy. All our board meetings, all our board meetings are now done remotely. Yeah, uh, T PepsiCo, Tenant Healthcare, those are my three boards. And then, uh, as you know, I started out as chairman of the uh, mayor of Dallas's economic recovery task force. I split that into co-chairs, very capable African-American, Fred Propal and I are the two co-chairs. And um, I really am keen on his taking over the exercise because he's immensely capable. So those are the things I do. And you do a lot of it just as we're doing right now. Uh, you do it electronically. Uh- yeah. Do you can can you kind of share just from thirty thousand feet, uh, uh, kind of a, a broad snapshot as you see it in your capacity on each? I mean, it really is expansive. AT and T, of course, has extraordinary reach. Amongst other things, you just <laughs> acquired one of the great movie studios in the world. That being almost right. a small part of your portfolio. PepsiCo is one of the largest consumer. Uh, I mean, consumer good businesses in the entire planet and then 10 is a huge healthcare. How, what, what are you kind of seeing in, in this new, like I said, this new universe we're in uh, with the, with the pandemic and, and the state of the world? Well, uh, economists would say this is the, the production function of our economy is changing. So we have accelerated means now for communication, remote communication We've been driven into that direction of changing operating patterns of businesses, whether it's consumer goods or telecommunications. 
um, or the use of technology. And that has accelerated, I believe, a path that we were already on. So, for example, in the business of consumer goods, particularly foods like PepsiCo, I didn't know there were 200 countries, but it's almost 200 countries that we sell products in. Um, the way you distribute them, deliver them is changing. So we were talking for a long time, preparing for what's called uh, O2O, which is online to offline. So you order something online and then someone physically delivers it. By the way, China's way ahead of us on that. And we have a big business in China of learning from that process with the partners we deal with in China. Um, but I would say as far as that kind of change, what we thought would happen within the five years from now has happened in three months. Where people work, where they're located, how many people you really need. 2% of the jobs in the country created by small businessmen and men, not listed public trading exchanges. Um, half the jobs are still held by those people and they've been decimated. Well, now the big companies are rationalizing. And part of that's because when things were flush before COVID, where we were growing unemployment down, just everything was going perfectly. You tend to look over people that are less efficient or you may not need as much or that don't produce. When times are tough, you really examine who you really need and who's the most productive. So I think that also has led, in my view, to greater efficiency, not less efficiency, in terms of productivity. Um, the, as you know, in the business that you know so well as an actor, former actor, and as we acquired Warner, um, the whole business of who, how you display your content has changed. You stream it rather than go to a movie theater. Uh, we just released this. Well, I'd, I'd say I'd say it's the other way around. the The whole way that content is consumed has changed, and so then the providers exactly. have to adapt. But the consumer paradigm. And so, with Tenant, for example, really overseas, where they still do some things in the old fashioned way, people go to movie theaters. But the the speed with which things now get on the net or are distributed, all has changed very very quickly. Well, I think it's just. Ultimately, advance the society. And one other comment. This discussion with the Chinese on 5G, who will lead? This has forced us to move even more rapidly in, in that direction. Because you cannot have nursing staffs or you know, decision makers for consumer products or the shoving content through the tubes. Uh, unless it could be done like this. And the speed with which you can process things, 5G, eventually 6G, whatever the new generation of communication will be, that is vital to achieving economic success. Robotic medical treatments, operations, for example, or self-driving cars, if we ever get there, require incredible specificity. And we're being forced in that direction. So I, the, the, this is the good news about what's happened. The bad news is the Millions of people have been put out of work, particularly in the entertainment, uh, restaurant, bartenders, local convention, concert business. It's a big part of our economy. And these people have been waylaid. And that leads to social disturbances, which we're seeing. So hopefully we'll get back on track. And I don't care who is president. and I don't fault anybody. This is something that no one prepared for. 
And we're just going to have to figure out a way to get back on track. And it's a hard thing to do. People criticize us in Texas for including myself and Michael Dell and Ross Perot and all the people that are advising the governors in our little task force for opening up too quickly. Well, there's a cost for not opening up, which is skyrocketing suicide rates, skyrocketing child and spousal abuse and uh, opioid addiction, alcoholism. These are tough trade-offs one has to decide how to deal with. So we're learning as we go through time. And I think we're going to come out a much stronger society and a more efficient economy. That's my point as a result of this. Let's let's take just a, a short little time here. We've been inundated with a whole bunch of uh, questions from our audience. Um, and thank you to everybody who who's who's tuned in. If we could just make one appeal, which is if you could just rate this podcast, click on one of the star buttons, and then also subscribe. It makes a huge, huge difference. And it allows this podcast to reach more people. So please subscribe and just rate. We uh, we appreciate it. And we're going to go into the listener mailbag. Um, if you have a question, you can always email us at the, it is coffee at with the greats.com. Coffee at with the greats.com. Um, we're going to try to do a better job on show notes for season two. Uh, as a voracious podcast listener myself, I love being able to click through some of the things. Um, but let's dig in to some of these some of these questions. Uh, we got a whole bunch. Thank you. Um, and I will. I'll just read. I'll just read a few out, and we'll each uh, we'll each take our turn. So to start, uh, number one, how do you feel about the value of grad school, and would you pursue it if you were twenty five, given the level of information online with formal and informal certification programs? This is asked by Issa in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, Dad, you have at it. I am the only only child without an MBA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think? How, how do you feel about the value of grad school today in, in 2020 and going forward? Well, I do. It depends. Obviously, specialties, medical school, dental school. Uh, you don't get those kind of educations you need as an undergraduate. And uh, business school, law school of two things. One is you become better educated in terms of a specialty. Secondly, you make incredible contacts within the sphere that you're interested in. My own view is, and I follow this very much, even though I have majored in economics and for that was naval engineering, obviously at the Naval Academy, but uh, a a college education is a chance for you to learn about as many things you possibly can. You never get a chance for the rest of your life to both, say, read books, the great books, or at the same time study mathematics and should take risk in college. You have to focus more and more on life as you go through time. And that's where you develop your specialties. You know, measuring how much you get paid after you leave versus, of course, the accumulation of debt, which too many students have sort of gotten into that niche. Um, I think the important thing is to develop a well-rounded educational base and then specialize. But only specialize you go through time. And that's where graduate degrees are of great value. So, Isa, I hope that that helps here. The trouble is they're expensive. And you do have to figure out if you truly want to be in that field. And secondly, um, will it lead to greater opportunities? The opportunities are not always monetary. They're also who you get to know, who you get taught by. 
So our next question is from uh, Gregorus, who says, which kind of dovetails this, who asks, what would you say to someone who is six years into their career and unsure of the direction they've chosen? What is the best way to reset one's direction and perhaps start a new career or enter a new category? Well, if you if you talk to the greats, as we've been fortunate to do in some of our in our podcasts, you'll find that all of them have reversals. Now, Randall Stevenson was going to be an animal husbandry, right? Um, and Jamie Dimon had a rough going up before he finally became who he is. So, and if you listen to Ajay Banga, he was all over the map. I, I I'm 37. I just started a new career, having done a bunch of things. In fact, you were talking about reading the journal today. Uh, It's Saturday. I was reading the Wall Street Journal. There was a big piece on uh, David Rubenstein. And, you know, he switched his career at the age of 37, only having read some piece that said the most successful entrepreneurs begin at their business on average at the age of 37. Um, You know, it's Quick, interesting story about David Rubenstein. So he reported uh, to Stuart Eisenstadt in the Clinton administration. And I remember Stu, who was one of the greatest human beings, so decent, so honest. Um, we had a, we were just conversing one day. He said, you know, David's never going to make it. He, he's just too much of a nerd. He's, he's never going to be successful. Well, look at David Rubenstein now. I mean, he's one of the most successful people in the history of the planet. Yeah. So I think every now and then you just, for your own sanity and satisfaction, you repot and you, and you grow something new of yourself. Um, Yeah. I would, I would say, you know, from my, there's a, there's a famous American psychologist named Albert Ellis. And uh, I always remember this famous quote he had, which was the best years of your life are the ones in which you decide, you decide, uh, you know, what your problems are. You don't blame them on your mother, your father, the economy, or the president. You realize you control your own destiny. And while that sounds uh, in one way a little trite, I I just remember being in my early 30s, having had a legitimate career in Hollywood, which is to say, you look up my name on IMDb and you have to scroll down a little bit. You know, I've got 50 credits. And I just felt I just felt I was renting my career. Uh, I just had no equity in anything I was doing. And it, it, you know, this, this idea, this economics idea of sunk cost is very powerful. I put a lot into uh, being in movies and TV shows. I've been doing it since I was 12 years old. And you, you continue to kind of march forward. I mean, and maybe it's specific to Hollywood because it's one of the only careers where you can be encouraged to death. You know, hey, keep on trying. Good for you. And nothing really ever pans out. But I, I would say if you feel like you're being passive, then then you should take a risk because, you know, you need to happen to the world. Don't just let the world happen to you, particularly when you're young. And, you know, I'm I'm a stone's throw away from 40. I, I still feel like I'm not close to the 50 yard line of life. So. You know, you you can really ease. Now you have to pay the bills, and you have to be responsible to your family, and 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 that and that matters. And there's dignity in that, even if there's you don't know where that goes. But uh, I found myself very tethered to this idea of. But I've invested so much in this career, I have to keep on. 
And letting that go uh, absolutely transformed my life. You're going to have reversals, but I think you should be your picker spots and only do things that make you happy and that you're comfortable doing. And don't force yourself as a square peg into a round hole because that won't work long term. Okay, last question. One last thing. Well, Miles, one last thing. You just, we were talking about politics earlier in this thing. Right. You know, the saying in Washington is politics is Hollywood for ugly people because it's all entertainment. Yeah. So I, I don't know if this questioner has a dream going into politics, but that's not my favorite venue. Whoever it is, we'll have to see. But remember, they're both the same. They're both entertainment. Go ahead. Last question. Last question um, uh, from David in Boston, <clears throat> who asks, how do you compartmentalize what you were working on with your different projects? Did this change over time or do you stick to your system from early on? Um, David, I appreciate the question because I kind of have a, a hyperactive brain and, um, you know, it's dad, what, one of the, one of the main pieces of advice you've encouraged me through all chapters of my life is to focus. And it, it's not easy to do, particularly in this day and age where there's endless noise and distraction, et cetera. But, um, why don't, why don't you take a, a stab at answering that? How do you, how do you compartmentalize what you're working on with different projects? Well, part of it is, of course, the way I was educated. The Naval Academy, you had to focus on things and not be distracted because literally you were being taught how to command a ship at war, ultimately, or how to fly an aircraft in urgent circumstances. So um, I kept that trait. I, um, my wife, Missy, will tell you that I'm good at compartmentalizing. I've, I've tried to do that all my life, uh, not be distracted. For example, uh, when I was at Harvard, I would always get a good night's sleep before an exam. I'd never stay up all night. If I didn't know it by the time I went to sleep, then I wouldn't know it, or I'd be so tired I wouldn't be able to express it. And I've sort of kept that uh, compartmentalization capacity as long as I possibly can. There's too many, as you said, distractions out there. Right. There's so much noise, and what you want to do is ferret out the substance from the noise. So I try very hard to, uh, I'm not saying, for example, during the financial crisis, I didn't sleep for 18 months through the night because we had so much going on and we had to same time focus to save the country, save the financial system of the world. And I was just a bit player, but every night we had a conference call trying to recommend to Ben Bernanke what we should do. So you had to be completely focused on that and sort out all the other distractions. Yeah. And I think one of the skills for success, you, the people that we talk to, that we interview in these podcasts, who are obviously successful folk, they've learned how to manage their time, which is a derivative of compartmentalizing, and to focus on what needs to be focused at the right time during the day and during the month and during the year. So it's a critical skill set that one has to develop and um I do think the military, in my case, my brief experience as a midshipman really helped me a lot on that front. Yeah. And I would, I would just add to that, you know, to, to bear in mind, try to have an understanding also of, of how your own mind works. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm more create, I, David Lynch, one of the great directors, uh, an, an odd fellow, but uh, extraordinarily creative man, you know, he has a famous saying, which is ideas are like fish. You don't make the fish you catch the fish. And I, I can always relate to that. 
uh, not just because my last name is Fisher. No, because I constantly, you know, being juggling all these balls in the air. So often I'll think, oh, I, I, I just had this idea, and actually I can apply that to a totally different part of my life. And so, just practically speaking, I think the most used app on my phone is the just the Notepad app. And I have forced myself to be very uh, organized in my ideas, in my notes. And I will just jot down notes and jot down notes. And then it's it's funny, Dad, that you talk about just getting a good night's rest. Every night, I will look through the day's notes, kind of reorganize and shuffle, and then start again. But I know that I get, uh, I do well from all sorts of different stimulants. And then I kind of synthesize them together. Um, so, you know. You, you may remember from our uh, interview for our podcast, Randall Stevenson, he writes things down on a simple little piece of paper. Index card. Before, yeah. before, he goes, before he goes to bed. And then he sleeps. And in the morning, he gets up and knows the things he does the next day. Yeah. Now, you're going to have intervening incidents. But that kind of discipline, that's superb compartmentalization. Well, here we are, Dad. Okay, so this is a... Uh... This is great, and I'm so excited for season two, and uh, and excited to get this going, which we will do soon. We also have uh, we have a sponsor for season two, and and that will be fun to to work in. Um, but again, um, send us any notes. We love to hear feedback. Uh, it's coffee at withthegreats.com. Um, personally, I am best with Instagram. I'm at Miles Fisher. And uh, send me send me a note. Uh, we we love to hear from you. Um, and then I use Carrier Pigeon to deliver notes to Richard. Uh, that old old technology. But um, uh, thank thanks thanks to everyone for helping get this airborne. And we're going to do uh, do our best to to continue to deliver with season two. Mm-hmm.